And I was talking to him this week, and I was asking him, hey, what are you preaching on this week? And he said, Psalm 103. I said, me too. So it was uh, very interesting, just him preaching the same text that I am. I think it's providential. Please pray with me. Father God, I I thank you for your word. And Lord, we just lift our eyes up to you. Where does our hope come from? The maker of heaven and earth. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you this morning, glorifying you, praising you, hearing from you, the embodiment of the word. Spirit, we implore you to Use the truths that are found in your word to change our hearts, to help us, even in this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a story about a city dweller who who was visiting some relatives on a farm, and the farmer gave a whistle to his dog, and his dog came running, and he herded the cattle into the pen, And then he reached up, the dog reached up and latched the pen closed. The city dweller said, wow, that that is amazing. What's your dog's name? And the farmer thought for a second and then said, do you know that flower that that is is usually red and it it has a stalk with, with those sharp things on it? And the other guy said, you mean a rose? He said, that's it. He turned to his wife and said, Rose, what's the name of the dog? (laughs) We're forgetful people. We forget. We forget the names. We forget places. We forget directions. We forget what we've done in the past. We forget things that we've said. We've left our car keys places where we can't find them. We've left our glasses on the top of our heads and we don't know where they are. And that forgetfulness bleeds into our spiritual life too. We forget all that the Lord has done for us. The caring, the guiding, the urging, the supporting, the admonishing, the loving, the providing, the empathizing, the generosity, the abundant grace, the incredible mercifulness that we could go on and on, all that the Lord has given us. So here in Psalm 103, David is writing to help us not forget all of his benefits. Look with me at Psalm 103. God's word said, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth may be renewed like the eagle's, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
He's made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in heavens and kingdom his kingdom rules over all. Blessed the Lord, O oh, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obey the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh, my soul. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, told his disciples that in this world you will have trouble. And sometimes in that, those times of trouble, by the way, which is a lot of life, right? You know, it's just not a sliver here and a sliver there. Trouble seems to follow us as Christians. And when we are in those times of trouble, we tend to forget the blessings of the Lord. That's where our flesh goes. We tend to forget all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. I'm sure that was David's case who wrote this this psalm. He had his share of trouble in his life, didn't he? I mean, sometimes self-inflicted and sometimes not. And so the Lord gave him this psalm. The Lord gave him this psalm to help him remember all the benefits. There's a hymn in our hymnal that parallels this, this psalm. It's called Count Your Blessings. We don't do it very often here. Maybe we should. But it goes something like this. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. I think there are three surprising blessings that the Lord does not want us to forget in this psalm. And the first you can see in verse 3. The Lord forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. We can't forget the surprise, to be surprised by forgiveness. We should be surprised by forgiveness. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Surprised by forgiveness? Isn't that what God does? Isn't that 
why he's there. But actually, we should be surprised by his forgiveness. See, God does not have to forgive us. He doesn't have to. He's not obligated to forgive us. He doesn't, he's not on the hook to, to us to forgive us. We live in an entitled age, don't we? That's a big word that's thrown around a lot now. We're entitled to this and we're entitled to that. You know, I don't care what side of the debate you're on on this, but we have a, this spirit of entitlement. We're entitled to health care. It's a right. It's a privilege. I'm not here to preach either side, but that's how it's being framed. And that is the bent of the age we live in. Actually, that's the bent of our heart. We're entitled to this. We're entitled to fill in the blank. We have a right to fill in the blank. We deserve fill in the blank. And that leaks into our theology. And we start to believe that we are theologically entitled. It's especially true of where suffering is concerned that we've looked at for the last several months. One day my mother came home when I was a teenager and she told me that she was the first on the scene on a car crash. And she went over, got out of her car and went over and opened the, the, the driver's side door and there was a woman sitting there. And the first thing the woman said to her when she turned to her is say, how could this happen to me? I was praying. In our minds, we think, I'm entitled to safety. I was doing a good thing. How could this happen to me? This applies to forgiveness as well. We feel we're entitled to forgiveness. I'd like you to consider a moment, this along with me, that we should be deeply surprised by forgiveness. Look down at verse 7 in our Psalm 103. There David writes, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us as according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. How comforting that is, right? This is where we go. But did you catch it? Or did you just read right over it? Look at verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. We don't deserve forgiveness. We deserve punishment. There's no reason God should forgive us. No reason. In fact, He shouldn't. He shouldn't forgive us. Let me expand our mind here a little bit. 
Prosecutors in North Chicago say a father poured sulfuric acid down the throat of his infant son. He then put the sulfuric acid in a can of baby formula and then conspired with the mother to blame the manufacturer in order order to get a big cash settlement. After 27 months of painful suffering, the infant's throat and insides irreparably burned. The baby died. 27 months. That's just about as depraved a story as I could come up with. And we feel it, don't we? I heard it. Anger. How could they do this? They deserve to die. It's a heinous act. That's the righteous anger. The deep, deep desire for that couple to be severely punished. We feel no mercy welling up in us. I I don't think so. I didn't. I don't. No. Those poor parents. That's what verse 10 is telling us. That's how God feels towards sin. Now let's expand our minds a little bit more and listen to what James 2.10 teaches us. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one is guilty of it all. Do you believe in the inspiration of Scripture? Is this God's word? If it is, we're guilty of it all. To understand the surprising nature of God's forgiveness, we have to realize what James is really saying here. That our sins, no matter what they are, no matter what they are, a tidbit of gossip, a short outburst of anger, a disrespecting comment to our parents, a four-letter word that escapes our mouths, unspoken judgments about people, illicit thoughts about others, those sins that we wink at are like pouring acid down a baby's throat. With that perspective, God's forgiveness is surprising. Why should he forgive me? If you truly believe that, you should be surprised that God forgives you. Not entitled, But surprise, that's maybe what drove David to write Psalm 8, verse 4, when he was sitting there with pen in hand and and wrote, What is man that you are mindful of? What is son of man that you care for him? He understood it. He got it. He poured acid on Bathsheba and Uriah. And God forgave him. That's where we need to be. That's where you and I need to live. Flabbergasted at God's forgiveness. Flabbergasted that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Flabbergasted. 
that he forgives our wickedness and remembers our sin no more. Flabbergasted that as far as the east is from the west, he throws our sin and remembers it no more. Flabbergasted that as we still have the can of acid in our hands, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Flabbergasted that Jesus was willing to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or to put it another way, Jesus was willing to drink the acid of the cross so that we might be saved. We might be forgiven. We might be redeemed. And that's the second surprising thing about our our text today. Look with me at verse 4. God redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. We should be surprised by redemption. Surprised by our redemption. Years ago, a party at an English estate turned to tragedy when one of the children strayed into deep water. The gardener heard the cries for help and plunged in and rescued the drowning child. The youngster's name was Winston Churchill. His grateful parents asked the gardener what they could do to repay him for his kindness. And the gardener said, just make sure my child goes to college. Churchill's parents made it so. Years later, Churchill was prime minister of England, he came down with a serious case of pneumonia and they called the best doctor in the land. His name was Dr. Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered and developed penicillin. He was also the son of the gardener that saved Winston Churchill from drowning. After recovering, Churchill remarked, rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. That's at the heart of redemption. That's what makes it so surprising. surprising. We owe our life twice to God. In Genesis 2-7, we read, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God gave us life. I think that's what David, certainly maybe God, had in mind in verse 14 when out of the blue he says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that he gave us life. And we had a perfect relationship with him, perfect fellowship. And then, Genesis 3, we fell into the pit. They disobeyed and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for that point on, we were slaves to sin. We were in the pit. That's how scripture describes our natural state. Psalm 51, David again, in his great psalm of repentance and confession. He says in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We're born of sin into sin. 
We are born in the pit. Destined for death. And God didn't have to do anything about it. He wasn't on the hook. That's why redemption through Christ is so surprising. So amazing. He didn't have to do it. He didn't. But Philippians 2 actually describes him climbing down into the pit. Listen to it. He who being the very nature God did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Those are the rungs down into our pit. And he did that in order to push us out. I love submarine movies. It's one of the go-to movies for me. I love courtroom dramas and submarine movies. And I watched a couple in the last couple nights. One, The Enemy Below, very good movie, 50s. And Crimson Tide. But there's always this trope in submarine movies. You know it. You know, in some way, the submarine has gotten damaged, right? And, and there's a compartment that's flooding, and there's men in the compartment working over time to try and save the sub, right? And there's a man outside the hatch saying, come on, you've got to get out, you've got to get out. And, and the one man always kind of pushes one out, but then the hatch has to be closed or else you lose the whole sub. So they close the hatch and the other guy dies. You see that over and over. Different plays on it over and over in submarine movies. Matthew twenty twenty eight says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and lived an obedient life towards God. He earned perfect righteousness. He came to serve us. So what did he, how did he serve us? He served us by going to the cross. And he died the death that we deserved. Brothers and sisters, he helped us out of the flooding compartment and allowed the hatch to be closed on him. He climbed down into the pit and pushed us out through his death and then died in the pit. And they covered the pit over. And he was buried. And through that sacrifice, he redeemed us. He, in other words, he bought us back. He purchased us out of our slavery to sin that we were born into. To give us life a second time. Ephesians 1.7 says, "We In him we have redemption. In him we we are bought back through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Through Christ, we are redeemed from the pit, bought back from death to life, and set on a course of living life, a satisfied life. And that's our third thing that we don't want to forget 
Look at verse 5. Who satisfies, God satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We, are, we should be surprised by satisfaction. Another movie, sorry. I should, I should start using books. But another movie that, that exemplifies this is the movie Bedazzled. It's, it's another take on the Faustus myth you know, of selling your soul to the devil for, for things. And this one stars Dudley Moore. It's actually not a very good movie. So, Jeannie, wherever you are, don't watch it. Moore asked the devil at one point to explain why he left heaven. And they're on the streets of England. And so the devil hops up on one of these big English mailboxes and crosses his legs and says to Dudley Moore, okay, just start praising me. Start telling me how great I am. And Dudley Moore does that for probably less than a minute. And then he looks up at the devil and he goes, this is getting boring. And the devil goes, exactly. Exactly. Allow me to ask you secretly an embarrassing question. Have you ever been bored in worship? Don't have to raise your hand. Yeah. I'd invite you to look at our bulletin. Open a bulletin, go ahead. And I'd like you to just look over our order of worship at how much praise and adoration we have here. We praise him through hymns and music. The Lord's Prayer today started with what? Hallowed be your name. What Jesus was teaching his disciples that were asked to being taught is start by praising me. Our Acts prayer, when we do Acts, it starts with adoration. We have a benediction, which is praising God for what he has done. We have a congregational response that is responding. The whole service, our whole, the whole response to this whole service is what? Praise. There's a saying, the typical attention span is ten praises, six promises, or half a sermon. Could it possibly be true? Ten praises? Boring. Can't we do something else? If we're honest, we have to say ten praises feels a little long. Always a little pastoral nervousness, especially in the summer when we do our Acts prayer. And I think, oh, I wonder if there's going to be enough praise or if there's going to be long silences. Our minds wander. Our hearts are not always in it. Our spirits do not always respond like the beginning of this psalm and the end of this psalm. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Starts and ends that way. This side of glory, brothers and sisters, we will simply be bored with praising God. To various extents. But here's where the surprise comes in. We won't be in eternity. It's been said, 
And we say it here that, that our worship service is practice for what we'll be doing in eternity. That's largely true. Not specifically, but, but largely. What we do here is to a great extent what we will be doing in eternity for eternity. In eternity, we will be totally satisfied with that. Right now, it doesn't sound so keen. But in our glorified state, we will be totally satisfied with that. Verses 20 through 22 give us a preview of that. When he ends this with, bless the Lord or praise the Lord. Bless, praise, same, same word in Hebrew. Bless the Lord, all you angels. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Bless the Lord, all his works. He's trying to, to sculpt this mirrorism of everything. That's what it's going to be all about. Praising God. And Yahweh has given us 150 psalms as a starter kit. And when we read our peak into eternity, which is the book of Revelation, that's our peak into eternity, what we see, the activities going on there, is actually praise. I leafed through it this, this week. I encourage you to do this too. And I, I see no fewer than 16 unique sections in the book of Revelation, they're about praising God. Angels praise Him. Creatures praise Him. Elders praise Him. Creation praises Him. Throngs and throngs of people from every nation and tribe and people group praising Him. Now for some, the picture that I've just painted of eternity is a pretty scary thought. Maybe boring. That's our flesh talking. When we are free from the pull of this flesh, we'll be totally satisfying, saying over and over in different ways, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, Revelation 4. You'll be totally rewarded saying in different and creative ways, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever, Revelation 5. You'll be absolutely 100% satisfied, singing for eternity, variations on, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. John Piper really sculpted his whole ministry around this. But he wrote this, One of the most important discoveries I have ever made is this truth. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. May we be ever growing this side of glory in this satisfaction of saying hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it is in this life in which we seem to go sometimes from trouble to trouble. Help us always, Lord, to go back to Psalm 103 and remember your blessings and forget not all the blessings and benefits of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to praise our way to victory and not to catalog our way to defeat. In Jesus' name.